News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, of course, today is Labor Day, but there won't be any parades this year to mark that. But there will still be lots of discussion about what Labor Day means. It's not just the last long weekend of summer. It's a day of significance as well. We're going to talk about that now with our next guest. It's Mike Schilling, President and CEO of Community Savings Credit Union. Mike, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Simeon. Happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day to you, too. A lot of people just think of this as a day off, but you're saying, no, no, we need to remember how significant this is. Absolutely, yes. And, uh, you know, there's a great history to this. There's a great uh, fight we'd fought about this holiday. It all all began about 150 years ago, you could argue. But um, it's it's as relevant today as it's ever been. And uh, we think, as you said, there's no parades today because for reasons we all understand. But actually, 2020 is as important as ever to remember uh, why Labor Day is here. And why do you think that is? What do people need to know? Well, you know, 2020 in some ways has been the has been the year of the worker. We've we've all recognised workers, which we often overlook. The uh, obviously our healthcare workers this year, um, who've been there for us under great strain, but also the workers in our supermarkets, the uh, the workers in our banks and credit unions, um, who've who've been through this pandemic with us and and really sort of stood up. Um, when we needed them to. And Labor Day is about recognising workers. It's about recognising the, uh, the the work that they do, um, giving them a day off, as you said. Um, but we think in 2020, that's as important as ever. A lot of people don't probably realise, Mike, do they, the significance of a labour union on their lives? They may think, well, I've never belonged to a union or what has a union ever done for me? But there's a lot of things that we have today because of unions. Absolutely. So it's a great question. It reminds you of that Monty Python sketch, doesn't it? And uh, But, you know, the fact that many of your listeners are enjoying a day off today is thanks to unions. But the fact that we enjoy a weekend is down to unions. The fact that we enjoy sick pay and health and safety standards at work and mental health support at work is, is down to unions. Um, ideas such as equal pay for equal work, that um, you and I might get equal pay regardless of whether we're a man or a woman or how we identify. So, there are there are literally hundreds of rights which your listeners have, um, which are there because unions fought for them. And do you think that's going to continue? Is there still a role for them moving forward? Well, absolutely, and I, and I think unfortunately these rights not only have to be won once, but they need to need to be defended forever. Frankly, um, and we see it every day. We see it all the time where. Um, uh, less than progressive employers are trying to erode those rights. We see it um, very popularly at the moment. Uh, a lot of your listeners will read about the gig economy and precarious work. Um, people like ride-hailing uh, drivers um, or some of these new jobs which are coming up. Um, employers are con- constantly trying to erode these rights, trying to say that these workers are not workers and therefore they're not covered by these these legal rights. So these are things we need to constantly fight for to keep people safe um, and keep people treated fairly as the majority of British Columbians and your listeners uh, would agree with. But isn't it interesting, Mike, that, that with all the years of the fight for more than 100 years, right, of the fight of labour unions, uh, the one argument that still exists is that like working, just getting jobs versus making sure they're union jobs. That argument, the debate between the two still hasn't gone away. No, it hasn't. And frankly, there's, there's a, a big vested interest and there's a lot of money 
um, on the other side of the argument, which tries to convince us that we don't need labor unions, that we don't we don't need to have these rights enshrined in law, that we sh- we should have we should somehow trust uh, that people will be treated fairly. But you know, none of us are naive enough to think about that. Um, we have laws in this country to protect people when they need it. Um, none of us think that that should be down to trust and to, to, to follow people's words. We should have a we should have a clear code. Um, and again, you know, I, I think when it comes down to that, there's very few people who disagree uh, with that concept. We all want to be treated fairly. We want our children when they get work to be treated fairly. Um, and we want that to be a right, not just uh, not just to trust someone's word. But couldn't you also argue, though, that the labor unions have been so successful that people, a lot of people feel today that they don't need one to enjoy those rights? Yeah, exactly. But I, I, I think um, I think that's quite uh, short termism. And, and like I said, I think a lot of the jobs, the new jobs and the economy is always changing. Right. And it must change. Um, a lot of the new jobs, we see employers pushing very hard to erode these rights, uh, using all sorts of excuses about profitability and efficiency and all this stuff we've heard before. Um, but it, it's just not true. Um, but really what people are trying to do is cheap out on workers and put more money in the pockets of the of the rich owners. Um, and that's a fight which has gone on for more than 100 years, probably thousands of years. And it probably will go on more. Mike, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. Mike Schilling, President and CEO of Community Savings Credit Union, talking about the history and importance, the significance of Labor Day. Usually they ha- we have parades and things. That's not going to happen today, but there's still quite a discussion going on about what Labor Day means. We want to talk about staying smart about wildfires right now, because although we had a very delayed start to the season, no question that we are having some wildfire problems out there. Just look at what is happening in the United States right now in California. They have this huge blaze, one of them anyway, in Southern California. It's something like 7,000 acres right now. 3,000 people have been forced to evacuate their homes. How did that one get started? A firework at a gender reveal party is the reason why that fire got started. I know, seems so dumb, right? That in that kind of heat and dry weather, you'd be doing that. But those mistakes get made. So we're going to talk about staying safe and making sure we prevent wildfires out there. Joining us is Lori Daniels, UBC wildfire expert and a professor in the Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences. Lori, thank you for being here. Oh, I'm glad to be with you this morning. Does it surprise you to hear that you've got this giant wildfire in California started by gender reveal party fireworks? Um, it's disappointing that we are still having fires, especially in the extreme heat and the hot, dry, windy conditions that they're experiencing in, in California, that there's still accidental ignitions taking place. So preventable. And does that happen here as well? Not necessarily a gender reveal party, but human-caused wildfires. Absolutely. Within Canada, about 50% of our fires on average every year are started by people. Lots of, lots of ways that we accidentally start fires, sometimes fireworks, sometimes it's something as simple as um, cigarettes out car windows. I was driving through the interior to meetings uh, at the end of last week. And sure enough, I was counting as I crossed the Coquihalla and into the, into the Okanagan, how many places right off the side of the highway I could see where fires had been ignited. And so human activities, you know, we often, you know, are tossing things out car windows, mm-hmm. unfortunately, that ignite on the side of those highways. And of course, lots of activities that we do in the backcountry, enjoying, you know, beautiful British Columbia in our campgrounds, in our recreation sites and out in the backcountry, we can also be accidentally igniting fires there. 
And what does it take, do you think, Lori, to get the message through to people? Well, I think um, it, it, it takes us, you know, continuing to discuss this issue, to remind people about the many ways that we can accidentally start fires. And I think often we're just not even as aware as we, we need to be or that we've We've overlooked some of the ways that we might start fires. So, for example, many of us enjoy campfires when we're out um, camping. We want to make sure that we're always using a campfire safely, that we have um, in provincial campgrounds, in national campgrounds, that we're only having fires within the designated um, fire pits and that those have been provided and are provided in a safe environment. It's amazing how many fires, in fact, this summer were started or were abandoned in our in our parks, both our provincial and national parks, where people had illegally created a fire pit and then um, not put that fire out at the end of their camping, a camping trip. Um, making sure that fires are out and completely extinguished. You know, we often put a bucket of water on a fire and think it's out, but if you can't hold your hands close to those coals and feel absolutely no heat radiating from them, You haven't put enough water on yet. So a couple of big buckets of water, stirring that water in, making sure that all the embers are out and uh, that that fire is fully extinguished is really a critical step. Another source of ignition that people aren't aware of often, but is a common recreation activity, is using ATVs and motorbikes. So when we're on these all-terrain vehicles and when we're using them off trails or on trails and then off trail, the heat of the engine, it can be really intense. And so it doesn't take much. You pause for a few moments, pull off the trail. You know, you're in around some plants that Mm -hmm. um, are being heated up by that engine. They begin to smolder. And as you ride away, you might not realize that you've actually started an ignition accidentally. Oh, wow. And so that's that's another way for people to be aware um, especially when they're using those recreational vehicles. There's an extra extra responsibility that comes with it. I'll bet people don't even think about that when they're getting on one of those vehicles. Now, Lori, is there a place that people can go for more information on this, just to educate themselves? Yeah, BC Wildfire Service has excellent sources of information about um, both information about fire danger, about using campfires safely. There's also websites on Fire Smart where people can be learning about ways that they can protect their homes and contribute to making sure that their communities are protected right. and resilient to wildfire. Okay. Lori, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. You know, K-12 to students, teachers, administrators aren't the only ones heading back to school this week. It's also back to school for students in the post-secondary system, young, old, you name it. Uh, there are tens of thousands of students doing that. In fact, at Kwantlen Polytechnic University's five campuses, it's something like 20,000 students across Metro Vancouver will be returning. That's the first time in, well, months and months where we've seen that happen. So we wanted to talk about the process that KPU has gone through to make that happen. Joining us now is Dr. Alan Davis, President and Vice Chancellor at KPU. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, you're welcome. So what is this going to look like, Dr. Davis? Like how physical distancing, how are you going to make mm. all this happen? Well, first of all, uh, they're not actually coming back. We're going to continue with largely remote learning. We have about 2,000 different courses being offered across those campuses. Uh, 90% approximately will be uh, remotely delivered uh, online and using various online tools. Uh, There will be a whole number of face-to-face experiences in certain studios and labs and shops 
uh, but they will be very, very carefully controlled with small numbers of students coming in. They'll be basically told which door to come in, how to walk around, how to do their work, uh, how what sanit sanitation is required and what um, uh, what uh, PPE they're either going to need to bring or they're going to get. So everything that they actually do on campus is going to be very carefully controlled, but it's not many. Uh, in some areas, you can imagine in like trades programs, in the School of Design, uh, in fine arts, in science and horticulture, there are things that people need to do hands-on. So we, we will control that very carefully when that happens. And also, some of the faculties have been very clever in actually building kits that the students can uh, pick up, uh, sort of curbside pick up here, and then, uh, or go to the library and pick up, and then they can take those kits home and actually work on their hands-on uh, learning at home. So there's a whole diverse array of strategies to keep everyone right. safe, but go still going. Right, so then did you determine that by which classes is it absolutely necessary to be face-to-face -face or to have students back? Exactly. And that's what we asked our faculty to do, say, what exactly do students have to do to meet the uh, outcomes of the, of the course or the program, and then translate that into some kind of modified approach and submit safety plans. And they've done that quite brilliantly, I must say. How are you dealing with first-year students? Their first time there, it's already pretty intimidating and scary. What's being done for them? Well, we, we have a whole array of student services, of course. Every, we're, in March, we pivoted online and everything went online, including counseling, advising. We've just had a student orientation uh, uh, that's largely online. Uh, we, we, we're doing open houses to, uh, as the constant part of the recruitment for next semester. So there's a whole, pretty well everything that's not in the classroom is also being done either remotely or very safely when it does happen on campus. Uh, so financial aid, of course, has been a big one this year. There's been new money available, uh, and we've tried to connect the students and help the students access the kind of tuition support uh, that they need. Uh, the, the bookstore has been open to uh, deliver curbside delivery uh, uh, throughout the uh, th uh, since we uh, pivoted. So there's been a lot of things going on. The library stayed open throughout the summer. We, in fact, we had a full summer semester. We, we had a lot of students studying, and we kind of figured out as we went along what was crucial and what isn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, on campus, interestingly, it's the common areas that are most problematic because you've got people wandering around and we've got washrooms and things like that. You have signs everywhere and direction arrows, just like you would in, in most right. places where the public gathers. So are you looking at this as something you're doing for this semester? Hopefully things go back to a you know, different situation, perhaps in January? Oh, I wish I knew that. Uh, we're watching it. We have essentially two two plans, I guess. Hopefully, you know, if, if things, uh, if we get this right and we can have more activities on campus, that will be great. We're, we're missing convocation. We're going to do that virtually. Uh, we have a new chancellor coming in. We're doing that virtually. So by the spring, we hope that we can do more events and, and gatherings. Uh, but, you know, if you it, it may not be likely. We may have to do this through, as we say, the next flu season to get through to next summer. So we're, we're building that contingency as well. But we're getting better at, at actually dealing with this. Uh, as I say, we started in March. We had a full summer semester. Pretty well everything on campus is labeled right now, including mm -hmm. my office, about what I can and can't do. So uh, I think we've got it 
pretty well nailed. We followed all the go-forward guidelines. We submitted all our plans. So uh, we feel pretty confident um, right. that we can, we can continue with our core business uh, and keep everyone safe. And what about the, the kind of the activities sometimes that students get up to about gathering or mm. getting together? We've seen this as a big problem down in the United States. Sometimes, you know, post-secondary yeah. students just can't help get together. What are you going to do about that? Well, uh, we can only control what happens on campus and then encourage people to stay safe uh, on campus. It's, uh, it's, it's two meters and uh, we, we, don't, we can't verify people's bubbles. So we're just saying, look, it's two meters uh, and we've taken out furniture. We've, you know, we've got signs everywhere. There is no gathering on campus um, and except when there's maybe six students in a lab and they're all kind of isolated. Uh, we do have these hands-on experiences, but they're very, very carefully controlled. But just those random gatherings, and I know what you mean, which is a big part of campus life, we just we just can't cope with that with five campuses and multiple entrances and exits. Uh, we've just kind of made it very clear, if, uh, wear a mask, uh, highly recommended that you wear a mask, because that you know, in case you got turn the corner and you bump into somebody and you've got your mask on, you're safe. Uh, otherwise, we expect you to be two meters apart, whether you're sitting there studying or you're having, uh, having a lunch break or whatever. And we'll have our security and other personnel wandering around just gently reminding people that that is our rule. All right. Well, good luck. Great. Thanks so much. Let's talk about the potential for a fall provincial election. You keep hearing about it, right? I keep hearing about it too. But you think, are politicians really going to do this to us? Are they really going to put us through a provincial election as we're trying to recover from a pandemic? Stranger things have happened in BC politics. But we wanted to know, what would it take to make that happen? What kind of dominoes have to fall to make us go to the polls? Joining us now is Dr. Kim Spears, political expert at the University of Victoria. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Do you think the time like we could actually get an election this fall? Is the time right for something like that? Well, I don't know about right. <laughs> I think that's definitely up for a bit of debate. But um, listen, I think we might have two elections, one at the federal level and, and one at the provincial level. And um, I was watching uh, what was taking place in New Brunswick um, a few weeks ago. They're scheduled to go to the polls um, September 14th. Um, and similar situation in New Brunswick. Um, um, uh, Premier Blaine Higgs wanted uh, an agreement with the other party leaders to work, uh, towards like, yeah, working together for the next two years. He didn't get it, and then that triggered an election. Um, Saskatchewan is also scheduled to go um, to election on October 26th. So it is happening elsewhere. Um, and uh, and I know BC um, and, and Horgan actually alluded to just, you know, keeping an eye on what's going on, um, especially in New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just in terms of the... Um, I'm I'm interested to see how many people actually come out to vote. You know, what what are the kind of issues in terms of people being able to vote? You know, are there any hiccups right. there and so forth? But what would have to happen? Because we obviously have that agreement, right, but for, that allows the NDP to govern. Would there not have to be certain steps that would force the government to call an election? Yeah, there would be. Um, and... Uh, 
So the uh, NDP, they're uh, scheduled to resume uh, sitting on October 5th. So um, I'm, yeah, in terms of triggering an election, um, what I'm wondering if um, there, there might be something uh, related to the pandemic in terms of funding or something. And it would have to, so that, as you know, they've been working with the Greens. So I think um, what I'm seeing is that, um, you know, would the NDP produce something that um, the Greens just could not agree to? Um, right. And and that might trigger an election there. And And I mean, just to add to the kind of craziness of it all, I mean, they're electing the new Green leader on September 14th as well. So there's, yeah, there's, there's kind of lots of uh, variables going on right now um, in terms of probably a wait and right. see what happens. So that's a lot of the political aspect of this, Dr. Spears. But what about the general public? Like, Are they accepting, do you think, of being forced to go to the polls? Or is there p- the potential for backlash there? I think there's always the potential for backlash. Um, I don't know if anybody really likes elections very much except for perhaps those that work in them it's kind of their super bowl time or great cup time i should say um but yeah and that's what i was thinking with horgan you know is it better um for their government to wait for a year or try to trigger an election um just in case people aren't aware uh, there was a poll that came out on September 4th where it showed 48% of British Columbians would vote to keep the NDP in power. And, and that's been a steady number over the summer. So I think, you know, that's a pretty high number. That's majority. And um, and the NDPs have already been in power for three years. So, um but that could yeah. turn on a dime. We know that too, right? Like that must be tempting for any party to look at and go, wow, look how popular we are. It takes 48 hours for that to change. Exactly. And I, yeah, it's like reading the room, right? So um, no doubt, uh, you know, there's probably some additional polls to see what that happens. But I think they're really going to look at New Brunswick to see what happens there because that same question was being asked of New Brunswick, like, you know, oh my gosh, you're going to trigger an election in the middle of a pandemic. What's it going to look like? You know, and so I think if there is a backlash to the incumbent, um, Blaine Higgs, then that might put a bit of a damper, I think, for Horgan's NDPs in terms of, okay, well, maybe we should wait. Right. yeah. So you're saying everybody's waiting. And in New Brunswick, they just went to the polls two years ago because I was there two ah! years ago at this time. And I remember seeing all the signs. So two years is not that long. And for us, it's like we know we're going to have one next year. So why have one now? Well, the thing with the uh, with the minority government, and it's funny because I loved what uh, John Horgan had to say. And he said he thought the shelf life of a John Horgan government was a supposed it was supposed to be six weeks and six months. And now apparently it will go on forever. So (laughs) and I love that because I was out there, you know, the average minority government lasts about 18 months. And so I thought I thought it would last about that long. So, you know, it's a bit of a tongue in cheek comment. But, you know, right. 
But then that, so, that stability, yeah. I think, is what people in BC have liked about it so far. Yeah. So you do trigger angering people. Can you think of any time when calling an election did backfire on a political party? Um, oh, gosh, I remember. Okay, this is one of the first campaigns I was involved with in, uh, back in 1993. If I, if I recall correctly, that, that um, gosh... Yeah, I just remember, well, I remember the Conservatives um, only winning two seats in that election. Um, so you never know what an election would will bring. And, and prior to that, you know, the Conservatives had a, um, had a majority government. So, I mean, you never know uh, how That's many true. seats you're going to win. And one thing, too, with the minority government, um, um, and, and similar to, to the federal level, you should always be prepared um, to go to election because you just, you never know. Um, and so that's what I think, hmm. you know, with Horgan's comment, um, it could be, you know, and he's, it could be this fall. It could be, you know, in the springtime, it could be next summer. And, and that's a valid comment to make just because, you know, it's a, it's, I mean, it's been, I would say it's been going well. Um, I, I'm Knock one of wood the folks. for them, yeah, right? Uh, do- yeah. Dr. Spears, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. That Bye-bye. is Dr. Kim Spears, a political expert with the University of Victoria. That's the thing. Like when you, when you look at this po- election possibility just in political terms, well, yeah, you can make all sorts of arguments about why I'm sure some parties think this is the time to do it. Let's go. But if you look at the broader terms of what's happening in people's lives, where we're at, what 2020 has been like, you just go, how can a party think about doing this right now? The question is, which one of those instincts will weigh out and will win out? Uh, now, what do you think? Are you prepared to go to the polls this year or do you think it would be a huge mistake? Email me. Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. You can also call our buzz line 604-331-2899. I feel like if there weren't a pandemic on, this next story would be getting a lot more international attention. When we heard that potentially the Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, had been poisoned, uh, that certainly got a lot of headlines. But in recent years, when we've seen other cases like this, it has generated just international condemnation. So what is different this time? Well, Matthew Fisher joins us now, our Global News International correspondent, to talk more about this. Matthew, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Simi. I understand that Alexei Navalny has kind of woken up from his coma in Germany now. That is the news today, which uh, I'm sure is very good news. Uh, it happened also with the two Russians, uh, a father and daughter, who were poisoned in uh, Britain uh, a couple of years ago uh, near Salisbury in England. And... Uh, the problem is the recovery process takes very long, and I guess they didn't get enough of the nerve agent because uh, an unfortunate British woman who, in what they call a dustbin, but in a garbage can or trash, uh, she touched some of this poison and she did die, uh, and it went in through her fingers. It was rumored that the poison this time, uh, this Novichok or newcomer poison, as it's called, uh, was sprinkled in Navalny's underwear or in his socks. Wow. Okay, the story is so bizarre. But Matthew, why isn't it getting the same amount of attention as the case from a couple of years ago, as you mentioned? 
Well, uh, you know, it's like cry wolf so often. Russia systematically goes out and does this. Uh, there, there are three ways it controls uh, Putin's grip on power where the opposition isn't allowed to rise. One is to ban people from running in elections whenever they start to seem even mildly popular. Uh, a second way is to throw them in jail on trumped-up charges. They disappear into the gulag, if you like, for 10 or 15 years. And the third way is simply to kill them. And their favored method before often was shooting. Uh, that's how they killed uh, another opposition leader, a former senior aide to uh, Boris Yeltsin, uh, um, and that was Boris Nemtsov. He was shot in the back on a bridge within sight of the Kremlin in Moscow a couple of years ago. But poison has also been a constant theme. And it's happened so often. And every time, Simi, the Western reaction is it's ab ab abhorrent, it's abominable, and that's it. There are no consequences for Russia. They go merrily on their way, and it emboldens them, just as so often with China. Uh, uh, they get emboldened because we don't do anything when they do outrageous things in Hong Kong or Tibetans or to Galenfong or to uh, uh, Falun Gong, sorry, or uh, um, the Uyghur Muslim minority. Uh, these governments, these dictatorships, are always pressing our buttons to see what the reaction will be. And if we don't come back ferociously, they get away with it. Well, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, then, do they feel perhaps emboldened? Well, I think we can see with Russia, China, and maybe even a bit with North Korea and Iran, that they all feel they can do more things now because our governments are understandably uh, very interested in trying to... Uh, mitigate the consequences of the coronavirus, which, of course, is is global. Uh, Russia has a big coronavirus problem itself. China had one earlier, uh, but they uh, they're able to compartmentalize. They will still pursue all their military objectives at the same time. And in the West, we don't I don't believe we really have the same kind of military objectives anyway. But we don't pay uh, nearly enough attention to this kind of thing. And Canada's bad for this, but frankly, every Western country is bad for this. And right now as well, there's all these allegations, including that intelligence bulletin in the United States issued by the Department of Homeland Security, warning that Russia's also trying to still cause trouble in the uh, election process. Yes, uh, massive trouble. And uh, Almost every day or every week we get new revelations of how much actually Donald Trump and his people interacted with Putin and his government in the lead up to the election in 2016. And also details about how the Russians tried to uh, run a massive disinformation campaign. Uh, I believe they have also done it in Canada but uh, the United States is, of course, the apple of their eye. It's much more important to them to do this in the United States. And mm -hmm. I certainly believe, because I've, I've met some of these people in Moscow, there are lots of them. They're extremely well-funded. They're highly motivated, and they're protected by the state. We just do not have anything equivalent in the West. Right. Matthew, thank you for talking to us about this today. Well, thank you very much. 
All right, we're going to talk about some good news that we heard having to do with our southern resident killer whale population. This is something that I think people here, a lot of us, watch very carefully. It's almost like a movie come to life. We root for them. We want to see them do well. And you may remember that there was a whale that is number J35 in this particular pod that had made headlines all over the world, really for the wrong reasons, because J35 was mourning the death of her newborn calf. And she mourned by carrying the calf around with her for days and days. And this was watched by people all over the world. So earlier this summer, we heard the good news, right? That J35 was pregnant once again. For marine researchers, for people who were just following along, this was such great news, the potential that J35 might be having another whale calf. Well, we have news on that this morning, actually. So joining us now is Dr. Lance Barrett-Lenard, who's an OceanWise researcher. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. So what is the good news? How is J35? J35 seems great. And uh, the good news is that she's had a health, what appears to be so far anyway, a healthy little baby. Excellent. Okay. Now, how can you tell that this is healthy so far? Well, um, it's vigorous, you know, swimming strongly, and, uh, uh, and that's, what we, that's what we really want to see. We can't tell very much beyond that. Um, the, her last half died very, uh, quite shortly after she was born. And, you know, sometimes as with, you know, sadly with some humans, you know, there's this sort of yeah. unspecified condition that often gets referred to as failure to thrive. And, uh, and, you know, just as doctors with human babies get a pretty good idea pretty quickly how healthy uh, a child is. It's the same with uh, with these guys. All right. So, Dr. Bertlard, how important is this for the health of that southern resident killer whale population? Well, that southern resident killer whales are really hovering on the on the brink of disaster. There's such a small population, um, and 73 animals now at the birth of this calf, um, and so every birth is is super important. Um, and uh, you know, there are a lot of Quite a few uh, post-reproductive, as we would say, females in that in that population. So, um, you know, being able for it to be able to recover, it needs young uh, recruits, if you like, uh, particularly females. So we'll wait and see if this one's a female. Yeah. What are you going to be looking for now in the days and weeks ahead? Um, we'll be looking for uh, we'll be looking at its behavior, how it uh, whether it's it's feeding um, properly from its mother. Um, occasionally, females don't produce milk the way that, 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 that they should. Um, and uh, we'll be looking for how strongly it swims. And um, it's, uh, but, you know, so far from the, from the glimpses that people have had, and I'm not one of them, I haven't seen it yet, um, it seems to be doing pretty well. Right. And you are actually currently in the field, aren't you? I am. I'm up in the, <laughs> on the northern, more northerly, off northeastern Vancouver Island, looking at northern western Florida. And this is part of an annual kind of whale research trip that you do. What have you learned this time around? Well, we uh, this is the project that I'm working on. We're looking at the condition of the whales, the body condition. We fly a little drone over them and take high-resolution photos. Look at how fat they are. And um, so far, most of the whales up, up in this area um, seem to be doing okay. They, their, their body condition changes a lot with availability of salmon. Um, and uh, we take measurements off the frozen water. We get a bit of an idea um, at, at the um, at the moment, and so we're not seeing a lot of uh, sort of ability conditions. Most of the northern seem pretty good. 
All right. Well, we'll let you go. Dr. Barrett-Lenard, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.